Nick, I can't believe COVID is still going on. And we also have something called the Delta variant that is basically making all of our numbers go back up again. It's really been a crazy year and a half. I know. And I think one of the things that I'm really happy for is that as I'm like standing in the ante room, getting ready to get all the carb on and going into a room and thinking about like, what do I need to do for this pregnant patient? I have the OBG project resource literally in my pocket on my phone that I can scroll through quickly before I have to put it down and get the gloves on. One of the great things about the OBG project is that you can also subscribe to OBG First, which allows you to create your own bookshelf. It allows you to have all those handy resources right where you want them instead of having to scroll through everything. Chief residents can actually get a free year of OBG First by heading over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and checking out the sidebar. Residents in general can also get access to the resident core curriculum for absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, check out the sidebar. You can get all of these resources from the awesome folks at the OBG Project for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over, over coffee. coffee. All right. So today on the podcast, we're going to take a left turn into medicine and go over diabetic ketoacidosis. It's been a little while since we talked about diabetes, Faye. So what are we going to learn today? Yeah. So today we are going to identify the patient with DKA and the causative factors for diabetic ketoacidosis. We're going to learn about the appropriate initial stabilizing treatments. Um, and then finally, we'll discuss the care of the pregnant patient with DKA. So let's start us off, Nick. I mean, it's been a while since I've done any type of medicine. I'm going to the SICU next month. So what is DKA? That's a great question, Faye. DKA is a metabolic derangement affecting primarily patients who have type 1 diabetes mellitus. Typically, the story of DKA is in response to some sort of stress and insulin deficiency is encountered. So the classic is like a patient with type 1 diabetes gets gastroenteritis, nausea, vomiting, because they were not eating, didn't take any insulin, and boom, now they're in the emergency department, obtunded and acidotic. The way that this happens is that with the insulin deficiency, any glucose that's on board or generated in gluconeogenesis can't be taken up and metabolized by the tissues. So you get hyperglycemia. And hormones that typically activate in response to starvation states, because again, you can't see the glucose in your blood, will activate. And what these do is they first cause lipolysis in the liver, which opens up to free fatty acids, and those get uptaken, used for energy, and the byproducts are ketones, which also are acid-producing. The liver also doesn't have any insulin to take up um, glucose as well, so all of this excess glucose, again, is floating around. The liver can't do anything about it. The body tissues can't do anything about it. And so the liver actually contributes to this chaos by first causing proteolysis to then find more energy, worsening the ketosis. And then the liver also goes into a state of gluconeogenesis, making more glucose, worsening the hyperglycemia. This hyperglycemia ultimately leads to glucoseuria, or loss of glucose via the urine. 
And with that glucose has to go free water and electrolytes, ultimately progressing to impaired renal function, hyperosmolality, electrolyte disturbances. And you can see how all of this comes together and is just a terrible, terrible cycle of metabolism gone wrong. DKA can also happen in a patient with type 2 diabetes um, if there is a severe enough relative insulin deficiency. Um, DKA in type 2 diabetes can also happen in a related condition that's known as the hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, or HHS. We're going to focus our conversation today on DKA, though, because the treatment of DKA and HHS really just overlap with each other. Okay, so Faye, now that we've gone back to med school, talked about the pathophysiology of DKA, let's get to the clinical piece and actually diagnose it. All right. So like you said, you know, typically DKA is going to present in somebody who has type 1 diabetes, who also has some type of precipitating event that's going to cause these metabolic derangements and then difficulty with giving insulin therapy. So these could be things like infection or other acute major illness, um, could be a new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, um, if the patient's not using their prescribed insulin, if the patient is using other drugs that can affect carbohydrate metabolism. So for example, things like steroids, tributylene, second generation typical antipsychotic agents, cocaine use, or if there's a malfunction of their insulin pump, which is less common with newer symptoms overall, but could be a contributor. The presentation is usually pretty rapid, less than 24 hours, and patients can present with things like neurological changes like confusion, stupor, coma, or even seizures, as well as abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, which as you can imagine in a pregnant patient may actually be a little more difficult to diagnose because we may just contribute that to, you know, the nausea vomiting of early pregnancy. Patients will usually also have signs of volume depletion, so tachycardia, dry mucous membranes, hypotension, and sometimes they can even have this fruity odor due to exhaled acetone. Less likely for us to, you know, pick that up now that we're all wearing masks. And then there's also that kind of um, pathognomonic smells respirations that we learned about in medical school, right? So that's in really severely affected patients where they have that compensatory, like deep hyperventilation. In terms of further diagnosis of DKA, the workup include laboratories like your CBC, your BMP, so your basic metabolic panel with an anion gap calculation, which is very important. DKA with the production of ketones will produce an anion gap metabolic acidosis, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but just saying that kind of gives me the shudders of thinking back to medical school about those anion versus non-anion gap metabolic acidoses. You'll also get a pseudo-hyponatremia, so you should correct the sodium value. The sodium concentration typically falls by about 2 milliequivalents per liter for each 100 milligrams per milliliters increase in glucose. So basically, if you have really, really high glucose, that's going to make it look like you don't have sodium. Potassium will often be normal, but DKA actually represents a state of significant relative potassium deficit due to urinary losses and shifting of the potassium extracellularly with insulin deficiency. And so when insulin is replaced, that potassium is going to get driven back into the cells and will lower overall serum potassium. So you should replace um, potassium along with your insulin therapy. And again, we'll talk about this later. You should also get things like your urine analysis with urine ketones, your serum ketones, as well as beta-hydroxybutyrate, urine and serum osmolality, and an ABG, especially if serum bicarb is very low or hypoxia is noted. 
On a VBG or ABG, you'll typically see a low pH with a low bicarb value, which represents metabolic acidosis. And remember, in pregnancy, bicarb is typically a little lower due to compensation for chronic respiratory alkalosis, so be sure to look at that value extra closely. And then finally, you should investigate for the underlying cause. So if you think that this patient potentially has an infection, you should get cultures or imaging. Um, you should also get an A1C to assess their overall control of their diabetes. And also, if you think that the patient has pancreatitis, get something like amylase and lipase. All right, Nick, so let's say we've gotten all of these labs and, you know, some of them are trickling back and we are concerned for DKA. What do we do now? Well, we got to treat it. Caveat to start in talking about treating DKA is that most institutions will have a DKA protocol, particularly for the most critically ill patients with DKA. So check your own institution's policies and procedures. Note that in some places, ICU admission is going to be required for various levels of DKA. We are going to talk about some pearls here that probably are pretty common to most of the protocols. There may be a couple of variances here and there. There are two primary things to do with the treatment of DKA. You're going to correct fluid and electrolyte abnormalities and administer insulin. I'm going to start by talking about fluid and electrolytes. So you need to give back isotonic fluid, either lactated ringers or normal saline, to replete extracellular volume losses and stabilize the cardiovascular status. If a patient's in shock, they're going to need rapid boluses of this fluid to give them back that volume that they've lost through primarily those urinary losses, as well as potentially through ongoing nausea and vomiting. If the patient's hypovolemic but they're not in shock, you can start with something like a 15 to 20 ml per kilogram lean body weight per hour bolus for a couple of hours before you slow down. Again, that's usually looking at about a liter to a liter and a half per hour to start. If a patient's euvolemic, you'll do a slower fluid infusion as clinically indicated. Most protocols that are out there will call for normal saline as the primary fluid. Um, but kind of one important thing to keep in mind is that the chloride load of normal saline is actually going to worsen the acidosis initially. So you'll find readings out there, at least theoretically, that lactated ringers may be the preferred agent for resuscitation because of its relatively lower chloride load and potential to resolve acidosis more quickly. There's only one randomized trial that's been performed in adults comparing lactated ringers to normal saline, again finding that LR had a mild trend towards faster improvements, but there were no major differences otherwise. We bring this up really in the absence of evidence because particularly in pregnancy, that trend towards faster improvement may be of particular consideration. And a faster improvement of pH may improve your fetal appearance on monitoring and lower the anxiety in the room surrounding the pregnant patient with acidosis. Your fluid choice, though, is often dictated by electrolyte concentrations. Um, and one important consideration in this is going to be your potassium concentration. Potassium needs to be administered as a deficit, even if it's not present on your initial labs, is going to be present. If the potassium is low, less than 3.3, you're going to need to give a lot of it, 20 to 40 milliequivalents per hour often added to your saline. If the potassium initially looks at like 3.3 to 5.3 or so, you can add 20 to 30 milliequivalents to each liter of fluid that's ongoing. And if the potassium looks high initially, at above 5.3, it doesn't need to be repleted just yet. 
but you're going to need to frequently monitor the potassium. Again, as insulin gets on board, potassium is going to be driven intracellularly, and so you can see a rapid fall. Many protocols often ask for potassium to be checked hourly alongside the glucose on a drip. Other electrolytes can be in deficit, particularly phosphate and bicarbonate tend to be the two that stick out. Um, these, though, don't necessarily need to be repleted in most circumstances, with the exception of, again, the most critically ill patients. And if you're thinking about pushing bicarb or giving phosphate back, you're probably handing this over to your critical care colleagues. I think that's what I've got for electrolytes, Faye. Why don't we talk about insulin now? Sure. So insulin, of course, is going to be needed in treating DKA, and IV insulin should be given for all patients alongside potassium repletion, as we already described. Remember that K can look normal on your basic metabolic panel, but it's often in deficit because it's been driven out of the cells. Short-acting insulins like Aspart, Lispro, or regular insulin are preferred at the onset, and longer-acting insulins should be held until the patient is more stable, and we can talk a little bit about that afterwards. In moderate to severe disease, you often will start with an IV bolus of regular insulin at approximately 0.1 units per kilogram, followed within five minutes by an infusion of 0.1 units per kg per hour. Again, most institutions have protocols that will calculate this out for you um, and prevent errors in administration. Again, it can be based off of their initial blood sugar, etc. The effect of these doses are to bring that serum glucose down by about 50 to 70 milligrams per deciliter per hour, which is usually about as fast as it can go. And once your glucose is around 200 milligrams per deciliter, insulin infusion should decrease to 0.02 to 0.05 units per kg per hour, and fluids for repletion should also be switched to a dextrose-containing product. And you can usually at this point also maybe even slow down your fluid administration. If the glucose falls too rapidly below 200, this can actually precipitate cerebral edema and injury, so you just want to make sure that you aren't dropping your glucose that quickly. Once a patient is only in mild DKA or is transitioning out of DKA, then you can add a longer-acting agent back and continue to watch their um, anion gap as well as watch their blood sugars before considering taking them off of that insulin drip. All right, Nick, I mean, so... This is great for DKA, and I'm really interested in this because, of course, you know, we're both MFMs, but we're, you know, not all of our listeners are going into MFM, and certainly I hope that not all of them are intensivists. So let's talk about how this affects pregnancy. I think really an important thing to consider for pregnancy is that the symptoms and then the treatment for pregnant folks are not going to be different, right? It was forever ago, Faye, when we talked with Dr. Kustan about insulin and treatment of gestational diabetes. And it's important, again, that insulin does not cross the placenta. And so the correction of hyperglycemia in mom is really, really important to ultimately allow the baby to also recover from the significant hyperglycemia that it's experienced. DKA, though, is unfortunately a lot more common in pregnancy. And you might imagine why, as we've talked about a lot of the precipitating factors for DKA. Insulin requirements increase rapidly in pregnancy, predisposing patients more frequently to potential insulin deficiencies. And then there are more opportunities for decompensation. I mean, you think about all of them, nausea, vomiting, and early pregnancy, the food aversions, preterm labor. We give steroids for fetal lung maturity that are going to throw sugars out of control. Patients with UTIs, pyelonephritis, or other sources of sepsis. And then also there may be a social concern or a misconception from patients that they're harming their baby by over-administering insulin and end up with hyperglycemia. 
So again, all of those things can contribute to seeing DKA more frequently in pregnancy. The last thing that I'll say um, before turning it over to you, Faye, is just we should all recall that normal pregnancy physiology is a respiratory alkalosis. You may see a pH of 7.36 and your intensivist says, oh, that's a normal pH. It looks like we're getting out of the acidosis. But for a pregnant person, that actually may represent a significant acidosis. And so you need to advocate, again, for normalization to pregnancy physiology. Faye, what are some other things we should remember in pregnancy? So as you alluded to before, Nick, in terms of different types of fluid to use, um, I think, you know, this is where we should bring up considering lactated ringers instead of normal saline for resuscitation of the pregnant patient. And this, again, there's that potentially faster improvement of pH in the first hour of treatment due to that lower chloride load. Um, And you also want to consider tighter targets for glucose control with DKA. You want to get somewhere closer to 100 to 150 milligrams per deciliter rather than just below 200 because, again, you want to make sure that that glucose control is tight for that baby. Uh, Of course, you want to counterbalance this with the risk of cerebral edema from overcorrection. And also, um, last but not least, remember that during acute DKA, the fetal status is often not going to look reassuring. So if mom has a significant acidosis, like a pH of 6.9, the baby's is probably the same or worse, and it's going to manifest on the monitor as absent variability, deceleration, and it may take several hours to resolve. It's going to look horrible. So a lot of people, you know, when they see that on the monitor, they're going to think, oh my gosh, I need to deliver this baby immediately. But remember that DKA alone is not an indication for delivery, and it's preferred to try and resolve the metabolic derangement before proceeding with delivery because this will better both maternal and fetal outcomes with waiting than proceeding with delivery in an unstable um, mom. If you correct mom's DKA, that may also better your fetal status, which then may preclude delivery after all. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our crash course on DKA. So let's go ahead and summarize. So we started off by saying DKA and reviewing its pathophysiology as a metabolic derangement affecting primarily patients with type 1 diabetes. Typically in response to some sort of stress, you encounter an insulin deficiency. And because of that insulin deficiency, glucose can't be taken up and metabolized. This kicks off a whole hormonal free-for-all in the body where you end up activating responses to starvation. So you get metabolism of free fatty acids, which leads to ketosis, acidosis, and the hyperglycemia leaves via the urine, which will cause further loss of free water, electrolyte derangements, and impaired renal function. In terms of diagnosing DKA, you want to look again for someone with type 1 diabetes who may have a precipitating event that can lead to metabolic derangements or difficulty giving insulin. That can be something like infection or drug use or malfunction of their pump or even a new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. These patients will usually present with rapidly onset um, neurological changes, abdominal pain, volume depletion, fruity odor, or those Kussmaul respirations. And when they present, you should get things like your CBC, your BMP, and look for an anion gap because DKA is going to cause an anion gap metabolic acidosis. You're also going to want to check your potassium because while it may appear normal, DKA actually is a state of significant relative potassium deficit where potassium is being driven out of the cells. You also want to look at your urinalysis, urine ketones, serum ketones, urine and serum osmolality, and also an ABG because you may see a low pH with very low bicarb values, which again, tells you that you have a metabolic acidosis. And then finally, you want 
want to investigate that underlying cause. Get cultures or imaging if you think that there is an infection. You may want to get an A1C or amylase or lipase if they if you suspect pancreatitis. Again, the treatment of DKA boils down to two primary things to do: the correction of fluid and electrolyte abnormalities and administration of insulin. Most institutions have a DKA protocol, so check your own institution's policies and procedures. But again, you're going to give isotonic fluid, lactated ringers or normal saline typically, um, to replete volume loss and the stabilized cardiovascular status. Fluid choice is often dictated by electrolyte concentrations, but again, potassium is one thing that you really have to consider administering because it's often in very, very significant deficit. Other electrolytes in deficit can be phosphate and bicarb, but those don't need to be directly repleted in most circumstances with the exception of the most critically ill patients. You should definitely administer insulin IV um, and also administer potassium while you are giving the insulin if the potassium is low. Shorter acting insulins are preferred and you should usually start with a bolus of regular insulin at approximately 0.1 units per kg followed by an infusion of 0.1 units per kg per hour. But again, most institutions are going to have protocols that will calculate this all for you. The goal is to bring the serum glucose down 50 to 70 per hour. And once that glucose is around 200, the insulin infusion should be decreased overall, and fluids should be switched to a dextrose-containing product. Once a patient is in mild DKA or transitioning out of it, we can then consider adding a longer-acting agent. We finally talked about some other considerations for pregnancy, noting that the symptoms and treatment of DKA in pregnancy is not different than for non-pregnant folks. DKA is more common in pregnancy because of more opportunities for insulin deficiencies. Pregnancy He represents a typical state of respiratory alkalosis, so it's important to target that as your normal rather than a typical normal for a non-pregnant patient. You can consider lactated ringers as your primary fluid for resuscitation given the potentially faster improvement due to a decreased chloride load compared to normal saline. You should consider tighter targets for glucose control overall because of the pregnant state trying to get closer to 100 to 150 mg per deciliter, though counterbalancing that with the risk of cerebral edema from overcorrection of hyperglycemia. And then during acute DKA, remember that fetal status is not reassuring. If mom's pH is 6.9, the baby's is also 6.9, or maybe even worse than that. And so on your monitor, you often will see absent variability, decelerations, hold up, don't deliver yet. DK alone is not an indication for delivery. You should try to resolve the metabolic derangements before proceeding with delivery. All right, Faye, I think that does it for DKA. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, any of your favorite podcatchers, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other shows on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a correction for this episode or a question or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.